It's nothing like getting up on stage and almost falling over. It's a good start to any sermon. And no laugh. It's a good start to any morning. Is everyone here? Our current series, The Table of Undeserving Friends, is coming to a close. Uh, this will be the last uh, sermon in this series. And if you're just joining us, uh, we've been looking at the sheer amount of diversity gathered at God's table. Uh, we've been meeting uh, cripples and kings and queens and military commanders, uh, prostitutes and widows, uh, prophets and even enemies. We could go on and on. And as we've been listening to story after story, we've come to see the inexhaustible uh, depth of God's welcoming grace. And the underlying question that we've been asking, however, is how do we become conduits of God's welcoming grace? How do we welcome others as Christ has welcomed us? And the point that we've been making over and over is that uh, we don't welcome others because we have to. Uh, we welcome others in response to the grace that we ourselves have received. Because the grace that Jesus offers us, it changes us. And it flows in and through us. And so as this series comes to the close, uh, we're, we're left with one question. Who are we called to welcome to God's table? Who are we called to extend this grace towards? And this is a, a question that shows up in the scriptures, but in a slightly different form. Who's my neighbor? And a lawyer asks Jesus this, who's my neighbor? And today we're going to study Christ's answer in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we'll see, asking the question, who's my neighbor, is actually the wrong question altogether. Because God's hospitality and being a neighbor isn't just about who we have to show that to. It actually has everything to do with salvation. And when we understand this, that hospitality has everything to do with salvation, it'll cause us to ask a different question altogether. So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10, starting in verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. The lawyer stands up. And don't think of, you know, Harvey Specter or Mike Ross from Suits. You know, this isn't like a suited up, perfectly hair parted lawyer, uh, a legal expert in secular law, and not even a legal expert in Roman law. This is an expert in Jewish law. Uh, this is a religious lawyer. He's certified in the Torah. Uh, he would be an expert in the many different lines of interpretation that have accumulated over the centuries in the Torah. And lawyers like this man are seen all throughout Christ's ministry. They're constantly evaluating uh, if Jesus is living up to the law, if he's being faithful to the law. And they're ultimately counted among the people responsible for Christ's uh, impending crucifixion and rejection. And so the lawyer's presence itself isn't neutral. But his standing up to Jesus isn't neutral either. The text is clear. He wants to test Jesus, or as the Greek more accurately says, he wants to challenge Jesus. He wants to see if Jesus really is faithful to the law. And so he asks, you know, a seemingly fair question. Teacher, what do you got to do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know. Jesus answers, well, how do you read it? The lawyer said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. You know, he's bringing together two of the most well-known passages in the Torah. Uh, and these are, the, you know, how Christ himself has summarized the law 
elsewhere. And so Jesus says, spot on. You've got it. Do this and you'll live. The problem is that the lawyer's question is flawed. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What can anyone do to inherit anything? You know, an inheritance is something given to you. Uh, But Jesus, he's willing to go along with this line of questioning. Uh, If you're going to do anything to inherit eternal life, here's what you got to do. Love God. Love God with everything you've got. Give your whole self selflessly and relentlessly to God. And in the same way, love your neighbors. And the question we should ask in response is, who can actually do this? Now, the problem, it's not so much with the law. You know, Scripture over and over says, you know, the law is good in and of itself. The problem is our inability to keep the laws. Hence, the law can't give life. If, if we try to keep the law doing strictly what it says, we're only going to find consequences for our failed actions. So Jesus is saying to the man, this is what you got to do. You know, stand on one leg and jump over a 20-foot fence. Or the restaurant equivalent, you know, eat a 10-pound hamburger in 10 minutes and your meal is free. Uh, it's just not possible. You can't live up to it. I see someone saying, I can do it. We'll talk later. But who can actually do this isn't the next question that comes out of the lawyer's lips. Isn't it interesting? The lawyer assumes he's got the love God part down. He jumps straight to the next part, uh, to the neighbor part. He asks a clarifying question in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? No questions about loving God. Who's my neighbor? We have to look at why he asked this. He was desiring to justify himself. He wants to stand rightly before God without blame. He wants to do it and and whatever it takes to achieve this sort of status before God on his own. The lawyer, he wants to justify himself. He thinks it's possible to keep the law and to do it in such a way that God will have to accept him and give him the inheritance of eternal life. But he wants to know, how far do I have to go exactly? Who's my neighbor? Give me the parameters, Jesus. Who is it? Now, perhaps it'll be uh, a command in the Torah like caring for the sons of your own house. Uh, Most Jews in in ancient Judaism understood this, that (coughs) other Jews who follow the Torah, uh, you're supposed to show care to them. You're supposed to take care of your own. Or perhaps it would be one of the commands to care for the stranger who sojourns with you. But it's not likely that this man has anything in his mind beyond my family or my immediate village or the strangers who might be in our midst. This is who he's thinking about, and we can relate to this. If we're going to show love to neighbors, we want some parameters too. We, don't, we, you know, we only have so much time we can give. We don't want to give all our time away. And, you know, is it enough just to love our friends and our family and the occasional new person who pops into our lives? You know, when God calls us to love our neighbors, is this what God has in mind? Come on, give me the parameters, God. It would be convenient, then, if Jesus would give us a list. And so I thought I would compose an authoritative list for you as a community. So here we go, official list, write it down. Love your mom, love your dad, love your siblings, your extended family, your neighbors within four houses of you, or anyone on your floor in the apartment. Love your coworkers, your barista, and if for good measure, love Jim, Steve, and Sally while you're at it. If you don't know them, you should meet them somehow, because I don't know any of them. But um, that would be helpful. You know, if Jesus gave us a list, these are the people you need to love. Here's the you know, authoritative list. If you love these people, you're doing the lie. You're loving neighbors. 
But if he gave us a list, we'd miss the point. The lawyer would miss the point. So instead, Jesus shares a parable. Look at verses 30 through 32. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. So there's a man, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but on the way, he's robbed. He's stripped, he's beaten, he's left half dead on the road. And now a priest is coming down that same road, and we have to take notice of the direction. Many priests in that time lived in Jericho, and so they would go up to Jericho for a two-week stint of working in the temple, uh, in, in Jerusalem, and then they would come down back home. So this priest, he's returning home. He's finished his two-week service in the temple. He's completed his work. He's off duty, so to speak. And for the original listeners of this parable, um, they would also know the priesthood were among the elite class in, in Judaism. So it's likely that this was a man of need. He's not just this meager priest with no resources. He likely had his own transportation, uh, whether that was a donkey or if he was a true baller, a camel. And uh, so, you know, he comes across this half-naked, beaten man. And, and, and not half-naked, fully naked, half-dead, sorry. But he, he would have the resources to care for him. This is the point. This priest would have the resources to care for him. He would have the means to transport him. Three things mattered in the ancient world. Uh, language, dress, and accent. And this is how people categorized others, us versus them. And so the priest has a problem. You know, if the victim is a Jew, especially a Torah-abiding Jew, he has a responsibility to care for this man. After all, the Torah says, you know, care for the sons of your own house. But how is this priest to know? The man is naked and unconscious, no clothes, no words, no accent. There's no way to know who he is. So what is the priest's duty? What does the law require of him? Who's his neighbor? The wounded man could have been dead for all he knows. If the priest touches him, well, then he becomes ceremonially unclean. But even though he's off duty, it's still a bit of a nuisance because, you know, becoming pure again would take a whole week. And during that time, he wouldn't be able to help and serve others. So is it worth the cost of serving this one person and not being able to serve all these other people? Or maybe the man's not dead, but he doesn't know who this guy is. What if he's an Egyptian or a Greek or a Syrian or a Phoenician? Well, then, by common understanding of the Torah, he's under no obligation to serve any of these people. So he could help him and become unclean, or he can help him, but not even be required to help him. What his duty was under the law wasn't clear. And so he decides to do nothing. He passes on to the other side. He stays away. Next up is a Levite. The Levite, they were essentially assistants to the priests in the temple. And the Levite likely knew the priest was ahead of him. He might have even been the priest's own assistant. And since the priest has set precedent, how could the, the Levite do anything else? He can pass by with an easy conscience. I mean, you don't want to upstage the priest. You know, the Levite think he understood the law better than the priest. And so imagine if he helped. You know, he comes walking into town behind the priest with this wounded man. He would be bringing shame upon the priest. He'd be insulting the priest. So the Levite passes on by. Neither act neighborly. That's the point. Who's my neighbor? Well, not that guy. Now, if this is a modern story, you know, 
It goes something like this. You know, a bishop passes by, a priest passes by, and so you're expecting, you know, a deacon is going to come next and do the right thing. And if you're in the first century Jewish world, you hear of a priest and a Levite, you think, you know, a noble Jewish layman is going to come next. But this isn't what happens. The scene explodes. Look at verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii (coughs) and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. This isn't, what? You know, no, like, this is probably how people felt. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is a weird right turn. This story got bad. You know, a Samaritan? A Samaritan is the one who helped this guy after the priest and Levite failed to do so. A Samaritan, you know, a half-breed Jewish person who breeded with the pagans, who has compromised the Torah. Who, we hate these people, Jesus. What are you talking about? A Samaritan, they're not on their way to inheriting eternal life. They're blasphemers. And it's not just that the Samaritan helped. That would be bad enough. The Samaritan goes way beyond helping. He uses all of his available resources. Oil, wine, cloth, his animal, his time, his energy, his money. And and furthermore, the Samaritan wouldn't be safe in a Jewish town with a wounded Jew on the back of his riding animal. People would assume the worst. Maybe he hurt this man. Kenneth Bailey puts it in a very interesting way. He says, putting the story into an American context around 1850. uh, You can talk to Roger about that. uh, Suppose a Native American found a cowboy and two arrows in his back placed the cowboy on his horse, and rode into Dodge City. After checking into a room over the saloon, the man spent the night taking care of the cowboy. How would the people of Dodge react to the Native American uh, the following morning when he emerged from the saloon? Most Americans know that they would probably kill him even though he helped the cowboy. And this is true of the tensions between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritan uh, puts his life at great risk for a stranger. He even pledges himself to the man. He says, Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you. This is what he says to the innkeeper. In other words, he's on the line. The Samaritan then, he extends a costly and unexpected love to this wounded man. And that's the parable. So Jesus turns it back to the lawyer and in verses 36 through 37. He says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. There's a brilliance here. Jesus actually asked, who proved to be a neighbor? The question isn't, who is my neighbor? Instead, Jesus reframes the question, to whom must I become a neighbor? The answer being anyone in need. Irregardless of language or ethnicity or racial tensions, don't use the law to draw a circle around who you do and who you don't have to love. Become a neighbor to anyone in need because love fulfills the law. And so Jesus says to the lawyer, go, do likewise. Go and live like the man who showed mercy. It's connected to his directions earlier in the conversation. Do this and live. In other words, this is what's required of you if you want to inherit eternal life. This sort of love of neighbor, this is what you have to do. At great cost, the Samaritan became a neighbor to this wounded man. Samaritans, you know, they studied the Torah as well. But he didn't search the law asking, well, what's the bare minimum? 
You know, what's the parameters here? What's my obligation? Do I have to act? He was willing to offer himself to the, the person in need right in front of him. Even though it was costly to himself, even though it put himself at, at risk, uh, he was willing. And he goes above and beyond the law, which was informing the priest and the Levite and even this lawyer's actions. See, in our culture, it's common that we'll walk up you know, to a good person and say, oh, you're a good Samaritan. You know, people who do nice deeds, they're good Samaritans now. And we approach this parable from Jesus as if it's just a nice ethical story. Like, yeah, we should all go like, not be like that priest and the Levite. Like, we should go be nice people to other neighbors and, you know, care for people on the street. That's not exactly why Jesus is telling this parable. He's trying to cause disorientation in the lawyer's life. On hearing the story, the lawyer must have had a crushing realization. He cannot justify himself. He cannot justify himself. He cannot do what is required to be accepted by God. The lawyer is challenged to do what is well beyond his capacity. The Samaritan goes well beyond what the law requires of any Jew. And the fact that it's the Samaritan who becomes the neighbor in the story exposes the limits of the lawyer's worldview. There are people he simply cannot love. Samaritans, they're too far. It's too much. And like all of us, this man loves to draw circles. You know, circles around who he has to love, who he doesn't love. And if he can keep the circle small and tidy, that would be best. Thank you very much, God. Remember, he's putting Jesus to the test. How does Jesus read the law? Does he get it? And Jesus is saying, this is it. This is how I interpret love God and love your neighbor. Live a life of love that fulfills and goes beyond the instructions of the law. Love anyone in need with an extravagantly costly and risky love that binds yourself to them because only a self-giving, sacrificial love is an expression of God's love. Anything less than that is not actually a representation of God's love. It's a totally different paradigm for the lawyer. This isn't how he thinks, but this is what's required to inherit eternal life. You see, we like to think we can live like this. You know, we treat this like it's some attainable ideal. Love God, love your neighbor. That's a good thing. And when push comes to shove, though, this isn't how we live. It might be at our best moments, but not every moment. Sometimes when I'm stuck on a sermon or I'm just procrastinating because I don't want to write, I go for a walk. You know, it helps loosen up the brain muscle. And uh, when you walk around downtown Vancouver long enough, you know it's not worth cutting through back alleys. Like, it looks like it's going to save you time. It's never worth going down the back alley. And, and so the other day, I'm walking aimlessly to let my subconscious do the work of the sermon writing. And I'm going down Davie, and I'm between Seymour and Granville, and I, I walk past the alley. And I, I just think, oh, I should look down the alley, you know, make sure something crazy is not going to happen to me. And uh, I notice this guy in the distance, and he's kind of lying half under a dumpster. It doesn't look good. I'm not sure if he's okay. Uh, but then my street smarts kicked in. You know, like, you don't want to go down this alley, Alistair. Like, that's a bad idea. Just keep walking. And so I did. And a guy walking past me in the opposite direction stopped. I saw, I saw this. And so I slowed down to see what he was doing. And he just stood there, like, staring down the alley. And then he went down. And you've got to remember, I'm in the middle of writing a sermon about the Good Samaritan. <laughs> I'm literally a priest who just walked past a person in need. And I think maybe I should go, like, 
see what this guy is doing. Like, this could turn into a really cool sermon illustration. I should go help too. Nah. And I kept walking. Why? Why did the priest keep walking? I wasn't concerned about who I could become a neighbor to. I was more concerned about getting my to-do list finished. The sermon illustration was enough in that form. It exposes our hearts. You see, sometimes we might become a neighbor to someone. I mean, I've had moments where I, I do the right thing. Sometimes we might not. Sometimes we might really give our all to following God. Sometimes we won't. And the issue, the issue isn't if sometimes we can live out this beautiful parable. The issue is that we don't do that with our whole mind and hearts and soul and with all of our strength. We don't and can't and at times won't. And like the Lord, we prefer to draw circles, a circle around who is in and out, the people we have to love and the people we don't have to love. And we prefer living like this. In fact, we even desire living like this. But hear me, this is antithetical to inheriting uh, eternal life. Because God is willing to welcome anyone into his presence, even those outside of the circles that we draw. You see, the good Samaritan, he moves beyond circles to need. He shows no regard for the man's language, clothing, or accent. It doesn't matter. He offers a costly and unexpected love. He risks his life by taking this wounded man into the town. How is it that this man lived like this? What changed? What should we do? How do we inherit eternal life? You see, we make a mistake if we allow the Good Samaritan um, to point the finger at us and say, oh, we should just be Good Samaritan. I don't think he's supposed to be lifted up as an ethical example to live by. Many of the church fathers, like St. Augustine, he says, the Samaritan points us to Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan. We are the wounded bodies, no resources, and helpless. Jesus finds us bruised and beaten by sin. He finds us on the verge of death, and he comes to us, and he binds up our wounds. He carries us to life at great cost to himself. He pledges himself to us and gives us all of his resources, and he fulfills the law which we cannot fulfill. He loves God perfectly, and he loves neighbor perfectly. He loves God by glorifying the Father on the cross. He loves neighbor by giving his life on the cross for the sake of the world. This is how we're justified. We are the rescued. We're not justified by how well we love God. We're justified by how much God loves us and the actions he's taken to set us right with himself. We're not justified by how well we love our neighbors. We're justified by Christ becoming a neighbor to us. It's all grace. We're justified by grace through faith. We put our faith not in the things we can do to set ourselves right with God, but our faith in what Christ has done for us to set us right with God. There's nothing you can do to set yourself right with God. There's nothing you can do to justify yourself. You cannot and will not fulfill the law by your own efforts. But like the lawyer, we want to, right? We want to be able to justify ourselves. But if you live thinking that how well you do or how well you perform, uh, somehow you're going to set yourself right with God, you're just setting yourself up for failure. You can't do enough. You're not good enough. You can't perform enough. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. That's what this lawyer is learning. But the good news is that everything has been done for you. You've been saved by Christ if you place your faith in him. Because God isn't concerned about you justifying yourself. God is concerned about justifying you. So as the series ends, we don't grapple with the question, who's my neighbor? 
That's not the practical outworking of welcoming others as Christ has welcomed us. The question is, to whom must I become a neighbor? To whom must I become a neighbor? And the answer is bigger than we're comfortable with. You don't get to draw tidy circles. It might be your friends and family. It might be people who make you uncomfortable because they're in a different social economic class than you are. It might be uh, people who have offended you. It might be your enemies. You don't get to draw a circle. You simply have to extend God's welcoming hospitality to them. But we can only do this because Christ has welcomed us. He became a neighbor to us. He gave his life for us. He has freely given us eternal life. So you don't live like the Good Samaritan in order to inherit eternal life. You end up living like the Good Samaritan because you already have inherited eternal life. And Christ pledges himself to you. He gives you his spirit. And so you can more and more become like him day by day. And like many of the encounters with Jesus in the scriptures, this encounter ends open-ended. We don't know how the lawyer responds. What's he going to do? You have to remember, he assumed He had to love your Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul part down. He didn't. And because he didn't, he misunderstood what it means to love a neighbor. He looked for limits in something limitless. You see, if the lawyer truly loved God, it would have changed him because of how God has loved him, how God first loved him and sought him with a self-giving, sacrificial, and extravagant love. He would see that becoming a neighbor to others has everything to do with salvation, has everything to do with how Christ saves us. And of course, the open-ended end to this passage forces us to ask, how are we going to respond? Will we assume that we have loving God down? Will we keep living as if there's something we can do to inherit eternal life or justify ourselves? Will we keep drawing circles that limit who we have to love? Will we fall down in awe over the extravagance of Christ's love who became a neighbor to us and binds up our wounds and carries us into life and healing and wholeness? Will we let Jesus welcome us to his table, but will we, more importantly, let Jesus to use us to welcome others to that very same table? Because, you see, our job isn't to bring salvation to anyone. Our job is simply to bring people to the one who can save. We are beggars telling other beggars where we've found food. That's what it means to sit at the table of undeserving friends. That's what it means for us as a community, as we wrestle through what does it mean to live as a community of grace? What does it mean for us to welcome people that we don't want to welcome? What does it mean? If we're going to do that, we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to the salvation he has brought for us. And when that gets into our hearts, when that gets into our bones, it's only from that place that we can begin to imagine and figure out what it really means to welcome people as he's welcomed us.